You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Welcome to Sicily. The situation is not ideal. Demophilus is famous for his parties. You watch from the sidelines as he reclines on his silken couch, draped in the finest linen, precious stones glinting on his fingers. His wife reclines near him, already half drunk, her dark hair hanging in sweaty ringlets. Your master dines with them on the couches, a wiry man with a thinning hairline and sharp, cunning eyes, a silver cup raised to his lips. He makes a witticism you don't quite catch, and they all laugh. He's always dying to impress Demophilus with his ornate manor house full of priceless purple carpets and engraved silver vessels. Demophilus, so famous for his parties. Among your kind, among the enslaved, he is famous for other things. Outside the walls of this room, in the grim wheat fields of the vast Latifundia, you've seen atrocities that would freeze a man's blood. The courses come and go. You watch Demophilus's slaves move among the guests, carrying gleaming pitchers full of wine, and plates of oysters, flamingo, and eel swimming in the richest of sauces. They meet your eyes surreptitiously as they pass, currents of recognition passing between you. Only the most beautiful to serve at Demophilus's table, men and women from Spain, from Anatolia, from far-off Phrygia. But here it doesn't matter where you come from. You are all of the same terrible kingdom. Meanwhile, the wine flows freely and the room fills with music. Just as the banquet reaches its crescendo, your master raises his hand in the prearranged signal. The whole room falls silent as you step forward. They've been anticipating this. News of what you can do has traveled far. You begin with the sleight of hand, 
bright coins flashing in your dexterous fingers. The audience leans forward, eyes bright with attention. The hollow nut in your mouth is slick and ready, sulfur burning your tongue. Sparks fall from your lips as you tell your audience the truth. Soon, they will all die. Soon, the oppressed will rise up and murder them in their beds. The enslaved in the fields, in the kitchens, in the stables, in the forges, will throw off their shackles and burn it all to ash, and you will be the one to lead them. Fire leaps from your mouth as you make your promises, arching high over the dinner guests' heads. They watch in amazement. They clap and laugh as you promise to torch their homes and rule over the ashes. Your master is pleased. Demophilus compliments your performance. He offers you a sweetmeat from his plate. You must promise to spare us, he says, when you become king. You accept what he offers with a flourish of grace, hiding your contempt for him behind a showman's smile. They all took what you said as a jest, but in truth, it was prophecy. Soon, you tell yourself as you accept their applause. Soon, you will show them. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Spartacus was the most famous leader of a slave rebellion in the history of Rome and possibly in the world. For thousands of years, his story has captured imaginations and been dramatized in novels, television shows, poetry, and music. But Spartacus wasn't the first. Others came before him, leading slave revolts that lasted longer and perhaps had a greater impact on the Republic as a whole. Because before there was Spartacus, there was Salvius. And before him, there was Eunice. In the next few episodes, we're going to tell you the story of the First and Second Servile Wars, the forgotten slave revolts overshadowed by Spartacus that once threw the Roman Republic into turmoil. The First Servile War started in 135 BC, about 62 years before Spartacus led his famous rebellion. It lasted about twice as long as the Spartacus War and involved hundreds of thousands of people. The Spartacus of this rebellion was a man named Eunice, a firebrand and miracle worker who captured the entire island of Sicily and inspired additional revolts throughout the Italian peninsula and beyond. For all its vaunted reputation as a shining beacon of democracy, ancient Rome was a society built on slavery. None of its accomplishments should be considered without keeping this fact firmly in mind. While the number of enslaved people varied depending on when we're talking about, historians estimate that at most points in Roman history, as many as one in three people living in Italy were enslaved and one in 10 in the outer provinces. So one in three people in the history of the Republic and later on into the Roman Empire were enslaved. A lot of times they were prisoners of war. Sometimes they were indebted people who had fallen into bankruptcy. And one of the things that happened in this time when you became bankrupt is you wound up being sold into slavery to pay off your debts. And that could be because you fell into debt or because your parents did and they decided to sell their children into slavery. And I think one of the things that we really came across when we were doing the rehearsal for this is a lot of times people like to talk about what a shining democracy room was, how wonderful it was. Like all its great orators and all its great artists and all its great engineers. And that's not untrue, but I don't think the scale of the human misery that underpinned that system is truly appreciated in those conversations. Yeah, I mean, we always say like, oh, yes, it was great if you were a landowner and if you had a vote and if you weren't a woman and if you weren't a slave. But the reality is what made the society what it was, all those accomplishments that historians and we tell you about, how everything is being achieved is through this terrible, atrocious, oppressive, evil system of slavery. That is what was going on. That is what is fueling their economy. It's what allows these senators to have their fortunes. All these 
vaunted accomplishments that Rome is famous for were created on the backs of one in three people on the Italian peninsula and off in the provinces beyond being enslaved. That is a really shocking figure to us. Like we knew it was bad, but we didn't really quite know it was that bad. It's like that is the most common. I don't know if you call it a job, really, because it's not a consensual job. But like that is the most common human condition that people are experiencing during this time period. The most common human condition is being enslaved at this point in time. And so often we don't tell these stories. We're telling the stories of Julius Caesar or Cleopatra or Caligula and his family. All noted slave owners. Yes. And we're not telling these stories. And the reason we're not telling these stories is because a lot of times the people who are telling you the stories are Romans. When she says Roman, she doesn't mean just ordinary Romans. She means Roman aristocrats. The members of the aristocracy are the people who wrote things down because they had the education and the time. Like, I think that that was one of the reasons that we felt that it was really important to talk about when we decided to tackle Spartacus as an arc. We knew we were going to get into the lives of enslaved people more, and that was something we've been really wanting to do. It's something that we took some time to really feel like as amateur historians, I wouldn't call us historians by any stretch of the word, but as people learning about this time period and as storytellers, we needed more background before we were ready to tackle the story because we want to do justice. We want to bear witness to the lives these people had, the choices they made, and why they chose to rebel against Rome and how successful they were. And in order to tell that story, we really needed to grow our chops as storytellers. We didn't want to just jump into it and maybe not do as good a job as we thought we could do. So that's why, you know, it took us to season five to get to this arc. When I was researching Spartacus, I was like, oh, it'll be like three episodes and that'll be it. And then I was like, oh, but we actually have to talk about Dionysus because he's super important to why people rebelled and how his religion went underground and what that meant. And then I was like, oh, we should probably talk about what it meant to be a Thracian. And then I was like, I guess we have to tell you what it was like to be a gladiator. So I was doing all this research in the background and Jenny was like, well, are you going to cover the first two servile wars? And I was like, Oh, I don't think I can handle that, Jenny. I think this has broken me. <laughs> I just like hold my beer. I gotcha. I gotcha. Well, the reason I felt it was important to include these two stories, these are precursor rebellions to what happened with Spartacus, is because Spartacus's story, as we said in the intro, has been glamorized throughout the years. But the stories of these people who rebelled before him have been disappeared. And the conditions, you know, the places where these rebellions took place in the Latifundia, this is actually a lot more common, as far as I know, than um, being a gladiator and living on a latifundia as a slave was one of the worst places you could be. And we really felt like if we really wanted to tell this story, we had to delve into these earlier rebellions and bring these stories to light. Spartacus is super sexy. He's a gladiator, right? Gladiators are glamorous. It's not the same with these latifundia rebellions, but they were actually larger in scale and affected more people. These two wars that we're going to tell you about were arguably more successful and... They deserve to be just as famous and they're just as important because if you didn't have Eunice and you didn't have Salvius, you would not have had Spartacus. We make the argument in here that if you didn't have Eunice especially, we wouldn't have had populism as a movement in ancient Rome and maybe the whole republic to empire thing would have turned out differently. And in order to really understand the history and the humanity behind the history, we have to stop and remind you. All of these facts, all of the things that we're telling you about thousands of years later are being told 
to us by the oppressors. They're being told to us by the people who profited from this evil system. There is an agenda. There is always an agenda. That was a thing that we ran into when we were telling the story of the Gallic Wars because we were literally using the account of the oppressor to tell the story. And so often that is the situation that we run up against. So this is going to be kind of a darker episode. The last few were light and really fun. And now we're going to take a dark turn. We're going to take a really dark turn. We are both drinking tea. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. So anyway, that brings us back to talking about ancient Rome and just how massive the enslaved population of ancient Rome was at so many points in its history. Anytime people tell you that Rome was this shining bastion of democracy, ask them for who. Slavery was baked in at the root of ancient Rome. According to Dionysus of Halicarnassus, who was a Greek historian writing in the first century BC, not to be confused with OG Dionysus, who we've already talked about. Praise Dio. Praise Dio. It all began when Romulus, the mythical founder of ancient Rome established a law saying fathers had the right to sell their sons into slavery for profit multiple times because if the son somehow gained his freedom, he'd come again under his father's control and the father could then sell him a second time or a third time. So, of course, the story of Rome's founding is mythical and Romulus was a mythical leader. There's no historical evidence as far as we know that these specific laws existed. However, people could and did sell their children into slavery in ancient Rome, usually in cases of extreme poverty, or if they couldn't pay their debts. The Twelve Tables, Rome's oldest established laws, mention slavery. These date to around 450 BC, about 100 years after the Republic was founded. So slavery was always part of ancient Rome, but sometime around the 2nd century BC, slavery started to change. It started to mutate in both scale and cruelty. To tell this story, we need to go back to a place we visited once before in our first Patreon episode, Pompey and the Pirates. We're going back to the unspeakable engine that drove the economy of the mid and late Roman Republic. I am speaking of the fearsome Latifundia. Oh, I hate the Latifundia. Well, get excited because that's where we're going. 
The Latifundia were massive agricultural estates owned by wealthy Romans. They were basically the only acceptable source of wealth for the senatorial class, who were not supposed to have actual jobs. And they were the closest thing possible in the ancient world to industrial-level agriculture. The Latifundia produced wine, olive oil, grain, beans, and other goods for export. And they were massive enough to fuel their own economies. The revenue from these vast estates wasn't taxed, and it contributed to a stratospheric wealth gap in ancient Rome between the landed senatorial class and everyone else. And the Latifundia were powered almost entirely by slave labor. As many as 30,000 enslaved people might live and work on a single Latifundia. Do you remember Cicero, the chickpea thing with him? Do I remember Cicero, who I had to translate all those years ago, who ruined my middle school? He's one of the meanest girls in the Senate. And his name, Cicero, means chickpea. And it was from how his family had this ancestral, possibly incestuous chickpea farm. That's probably a latifundia. It's definitely a latifundia they're talking about. Yeah, they had a chickpea latifundia. And during the Fulvia episode, we were talking about how many estates Cicero had because he was fleeing from the prescriptions and there were all these estates. I bet those were Latifundia, too. These guys, these senators, they didn't have farms. They didn't have ancient family farms. What they had were these giant agricultural estates that were fueling their wealth, and they were powered by maybe 30,000 enslaved people. The earliest Latifundia were established in conquered territories where sometimes as much as a third of the fertile land would be snatched up by the wealthy. The original inhabitants of these conquered regions would often wind up losing their land to the Latifundia system, but would continue to work it, either as tenant farmers or as slaves. Eventually, as the Roman Republic expanded its territory and economy through conquest, the island of Sicily became one of its biggest Latifundia strongholds. Sicily is the island off the coast of southern Italy that looks like it's about to be kicked by the boot. It's kind of this soccer ball, or football if you're British, or, or like the rest of the world. <laughs> Don't think it looks like an American football. It's like not, I mean, is it oblong? It's not oblong. It doesn't look at all like a football, but I thought it was nice. Sort of diamond-shaped. Look, we've got the Euro Cup this summer, and I've gone a bit football mad. Sorry. It doesn't look like a ball at all, but it does look like it's about to be kicked. Yeah. I have to look at a map of Sicily. I forget how it's shaped. Just for, let's move on. I'm terrible at how shapes. I'm terrible at shapes. <laughs> <laughs> let's move on. Sicily had originally been colonized by Greeks in the 8th century BC. So there was a sizable Greek population on the island that was older than Rome itself. There were also indigenous cultures that had lived on the island since the Bronze Age. By the 600s BC, the Carthaginians also had a strong foothold on the island. These were a culture of wealthy seafaring merchants, and Sicily was an important trading base for them. The Greek and Carthaginian populations fought their own wars for control of Sicily, starting in 580 BC, that lasted more than 300 years. So for 300 years, the Carthaginians and Greeks warred for territorial control in Sicily. But then, just a year after the Sicilian Wars concluded, the Punic Wars between Carthage and Rome started up. And this wasn't a coincidence. Events from the Sicilian Wars led directly to the Punic Wars, but it's a whole giant rabbit hole that I'm not going down today. So we might do a show on the Punic Wars sometime or an arc. That would be cool. But this is not that arc. Yeah, we'll get there. I mean, we actually did tell the story of the Third Punic War, which was the very first episode we did. So if you want to learn about the Third Punic War, listen to the very first episode, How to Survive a Siege, Part 1, Street Cleaners of Carthage. We apologize for the sound. Anyway, the Punic Wars started in 264 BC, and after 63 years of intense bloody conflict, Rome defeated Carthage in the Second Punic War in 201 BC. 
In the aftermath of that, wealthy Carthaginian landowners were driven out of Sicily. Wealthy Romans went on a land grab, buying up large estates at a low price as their previous Carthaginian owners either fled or were murdered. Around this time, Rome was also winning other military victories, including in Macedonia, that brought a massive influx of enslaved people into the Roman economy, mostly war captives. Add to that the massive pirate plop. Add to that the massive pirate plop. <laughs> Stop it. The massive pirate plop. <laughs> Apparently the pirates just did a big old poo. <laughs> How do you think the pirates went to the bathroom, Jen? There were no toilets on the boats. They stick their butt over the side and they poop. Look, the fish do the poops. Everyone does the poops in the sea. Add to that the massive pirate pl plop. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm not going to be able to stop. Add to that the massive pirate problem in the Mediterranean, where pirates routinely captured vessels and sold everyone aboard into slavery. And what you had was a high volume of cheap slave labor injected into the Roman economy just as all this new land in Sicily became available. In southern Italy and Sicily, the latifundia exploded. Because of the climate in Sicily, most of its latifundias produced wheat. In the 60 years after the end of the Second Punic War, Sicily became the breadbasket of the growing Roman Republic. Wheat was a very labor-intensive crop, and demand was high, so a vast population of enslaved workers was needed to satisfy it. In the 60 years after the Second Punic War, of an approximate population of 600,000 in Sicily, over 200,000 were enslaved, or one in three. Diodorus Siculus describes people streaming into Sicily from slave markets all over the Mediterranean world. Many of these people had once been free. They were war captives brought in from conquered territories, or they wound up enslaved because they couldn't pay their debts, or they'd been captured by pirates. According to some sources, corrupt Roman governors would sometimes organize manhunts in their own provinces where they rounded up poor people to be sold into slavery for their own profit, which I saw a reference to, I think it was in Diodorus's Library of History, and that is really fucked up, but I did not see any other references to that anywhere else, but I thought I would put that in there because I wouldn't put it past the ancient Roman governors because they were extremely corrupt because we looked at the system when Julius Caesar was coming into power and how the governors were put in these positions where they had to extort their provinces. I could see them doing just about anything. Yes, to anyone. We should also pause here to just give you a word on our main source, Diodorus. So Diodorus is our main source here. He wrote the Library of History. His ambition was to write the history of everything. It was mostly stuff in the Mediterranean world. And it took him about 30 years to write it. So he was writing from 60 to 30 BC, around 75 years or so after the events that we're telling you about took place. The thing about Diodorus here is he's actually writing at the very end of the Republic. Towards the end of writing his book, 30 BC is right at like the year after the Battle of Actium. So right when the Republic is on very shaky ground, right about to sort of transition into the empire and a lot of stuff that we've already done, Julius Caesar and then into Cleopatra and Mark Antony and their struggle for power and the rise of Augustus, all of that, Diodorus Siculus has been in the background writing his 30-year treatise on history during that time. To me, I found it really fascinating because you can look at what he's telling you the story of. And in one instance, he's telling you the story of the Servile Wars, but he's also telling you the story of the end of the Republic. We just had this major civil war. We had Julius Caesar make himself dictator, make himself king for life. We know how the Roman people feel about kings. And now after that, we've had this period of instability where we've got Mark Antony and Octavian, the second triumvirate, all this stuff, all these men are setting themselves out to kind of be new kings. So I think it's very much worth 
paying attention to the subtext that is here in what Diodorus is saying. Yeah, and the interesting thing here is we actually don't know anything about who Diodorus was except for some very limited information. We don't know a lot about his agenda. We do know that he was from Sicily. 75 years out, he probably didn't know that many people who had been an eyewitness to the first Serva Wars, maybe a few older people. He might he probably did know people who had lived through the second and the third Servile War, although the third Servile War didn't take place on Sicily. And he possibly talked to eyewitnesses to assemble his accounts, but he probably was not talking to enslaved people who were witnesses. He was probably talking to survivors who had been members of the aristocracy, because although we don't know who Diodorus was, we can read between the lines. He had time and education to write. And he had the resources to travel extensively to conduct his research. So he was probably a member of the aristocracy. He was probably a slave owner. So we are yet again stuck in the position of telling you a story from an account written by a member of the oppressing class. So we're not necessarily saying that everything Diodora said was a complete lie and you can just throw out the entire account of the first and second survival wars and everything he said. We're not saying that necessarily, but we are saying that this has a slant and it's important to be aware. Yeah, so we're getting back into our story. Diodorus describes people streaming into Sicily from slave markets all over the Mediterranean world. Many of these people had once been free. They were war captives brought in from conquered territories, or they wound up enslaved because they couldn't pay their debts, or because they'd been captured by pirates. Because remember, that's one of the things pirates really excelled at. And if you want to know the whole story of that, join us on Patreon for just $2 a month and you can hear that episode. Yeah, Pompey and the Pirates, we talk about that a little more. In Pompey and the Pirates, we mentioned that one of the worst places to be a slave in ancient Rome was on the Latifundia. And if you were going to be on a Latifundia, one of the worst places to be was a Sicilian Latifundia. Here's why. And here's where, like we told you before, just to give you a heads up, this is where shit gets very dark. We're going to talk about what happened on the Latifundia and some of it goes into violence and really bad stuff. And if this is not your day to hear about that, we totally get it. But just letting you know. It's just going to be bad from now until the end. We've warned you as much as we can. It's going to be bad. This is where we start to go into some more detail. So during this period in history, roughly between 200 and 135 BC, enslaved people were plentiful and inexpensive. In fact, most Latifundia owners felt it was cheaper to let an enslaved person work himself to death in the fields and then replace him than it was to properly feed and clothe the ones you had. Millions of enslaved people on Sicilian Latifundia were forced into back-breaking labor without adequate food or clothing. According to Diodorus Siculus, it was common practice on Sicilian Latifundia for enslaved people to be scourged, beaten, branded with hot irons, and worked to death. Enslaved workers were shackled together in chain gangs while they worked on the fields, and at night they slept in their shackles in underground prison pits called Ergastula. Over six decades, millions of people died on the Latifundia of violence, overwork, malnutrition, and exposure. Even the strongest frequently didn't survive more than a few years. There were three general categories of enslaved people on the Latifundias. Those who worked in the fields, those who worked in the houses, and shepherds. There were probably other kinds of enslaved people on the Latifundias, but these are the ones that are most important to our story right now, so... Sure, I mean, I imagine they had artisans like those who worked in, like, smithing and things like that. Like people working in the stables, all kinds of stuff. But this is like the three very broad categories that are crucial to the story. 
So those who worked in the fields, we've already covered. They lived and died in horrible conditions. As an aside, in ancient Rome, Gallic and Germanic people were in particular demand for backbreaking agricultural labor because the stereotype was that they were big and strong and able to withstand exposure to bad weather. I remember reading about the Germans and the Gauls and Tacitus, especially the Germans, and how he talks about how big and hardy they were and how they can withstand extreme weather really well and they don't wear clothing. He really otherizes them. He really otherizes them. When we were telling the story of Vercingetorix and the Gauls, those three million Gauls who Julius Caesar sold into slavery at the end of the Gallic Wars, many of them probably wound up on Latifundias. And that's why when we were telling that story, it was so important to us to really show you who he was. Because we had a lot of fun in the early episodes talking about what a great sort of guy he was was gallivanting around, having his career, having his love affairs, getting kidnapped by pirates. And then you get to Gaul and there is no way you can look at what happened in Gaul and see him the same way. Yeah, you can't. So let's get back to telling you about the enslaved people who lived in the manor houses. The manor houses were a very different world. These houses were often lavish mansions, and the agricultural expert Columella, writing in the first century AD, describes elaborate residences with both winter and summer apartments. So these slaves were there to tend to the daily needs of the Latifundia owner and his family. Some were highly educated, even professionals such as accountants and doctors were frequently enslaved. We look at people who have those professions today as having a trade and being independent, but actually in ancient times, if you were on the wrong side of a war, which people frequently were, this is the position you could wind up in. Yeah. So enslaved people in the mansion houses were more likely to be literate and to be well-dressed and well-fed because they were visible symbols of the Latifundia owner's power. And it was more expensive to replace an educated slave, which, I mean, welcome to the first servile war. Everything is awful. Yeah. To those in the fields, the lives of the slaves in the manor houses often seem privileged, which ancient writers suggest gave rise to resentment between the two groups. However, like those working in the fields, enslaved people working in the manor house had no agency over their own bodies. They, too, could be subject to sexual assault, violence, capricious punishment, humiliation, and more, with no laws to protect them. And that's just a thing I wanted to make sure that we said, because this would occasionally come up in sources I was reading about how there was, like, resentment between these two types of enslaved people, but everybody still had the same shitty amount of zero rights. The way the aristocracy keeps its power is by turning oppressed peoples against each other. Yeah, and also it's really difficult because we are getting this story again from the Roman aristocrat who hasn't experienced either life. So the third category of enslaved person was the shepherd. Shepherds were tasked with keeping an eye on sheep and cattle grazing on the mountainside. They generally had more freedom of movement than those working in the fields and houses. They weren't as carefully watched. Part of their job was to protect the herd from bandits and wild animals. They were often armed with spears, clubs, and staves. The Latifundia owners of Roman Sicily were so stingy that they barely bothered to feed and clothe their shepherds, and it was common practice for the shepherds to have to steal basic necessities, including the clothes off travelers' backs. They robbed rural homesteads, passing travelers, small villages, and anyone caught in the countryside without adequate protection. The Latifundia owners encouraged this. Diodorus, in his Library of History, relates a story of what happened when some enslaved shepherds went to their master, a guy named Demophilus, and asked for some clothes because this is a basic fucking human right. Because I guess they have no clothes. Yeah. And this is what this giant fucking 
shit stain of a human said, according to Diodorus, quote, some naked slaves once went to Demophilus of Enna and complained that they did not have clothes, but he did not listen to their complaints. What then, he said to them, do the travelers in the countryside walk naked along the roads so that you cannot take the clothes off them? He then attached them to pillars, beat them cruelly, and haughtily dismissed them. Essentially, he's just saying, oh, why are you coming to me with this problem? Like, what, you expect me to clothe you? I'm sorry, are there not people roaming around the countryside just traveling through this whole area where you're out with your sheep that you couldn't just, like, rob? Just don't come to me. Bring me solutions, don't bring me problems. We're going to need you to take that ownership mentality and figure out how to get yourself some clothes. So this is how this episode is basically going to go. It's going to be a rough one. As a result of this incredible advice and prevailing thoughts of Latifundia owners, A-plus management style, Sicily became overrun by violent bandit shepherds forced to steal to survive. There was no official law enforcement body on this island. Governors could theoretically bring in troops to prevent banditry, but this was unlikely in Sicily. That's because the Latifundia owners were senators at the height of Roman power. They had much more pull in Rome than governors. If the governor ever had a legal dispute, these were the guys likely to preside over their cases. So the provincial governors kept their mouths shut about the shepherds and just let them do whatever they wanted because they were afraid if they complained to the senators, uh-oh, trouble. Welcome to Sicily. The situation is not ideal. Mm-hmm. Left unchecked, shepherds in the hills of Sicily banded together to form armed gangs that terrorized the population. I've seen some writers refer to them as paramilitary groups. The violence was particularly bad in the island's interior where more marginalized people wound up, Greeks and indigenous cultures. So the violence was being perpetrated mostly on other poor people. That's another thing. Like we just said a couple of minutes ago where you see the aristocracy kind of turning different oppressed groups of people against each other. That was kind of what was happening here too. And they were creating the situation where these bandits were forced to steal. So this was all the Latifundia owners fault. Over decades, the Sicilian countryside became known as an extremely dangerous region where rape, murder, banditry, and pillage were endemic, and where a simple walk in the woods was basically an invitation to get your throat cut. Diodorus describes how the violence escalated. At first, the shepherds mainly targeted travelers on the roadways, those traveling alone or in small groups. But as time went on, they got bolder. They would break into small rural towns and break into people's houses, carry away poor people's limited belongings, and kill those who resisted. Eventually, people in Sicily, especially poor people who couldn't afford security, weren't safe on the roads, in their towns, or even in their own homes. God, this is terrible. The Latifundia owners often supplied their shepherds with weapons to defend their herds, but not clothes or food, and encouraged them to use these weapons to get their own basic necessities of life, clothes, food, etc., any way they could. Diodorus describes that at its height of shepherd-based violence, groups of men wandered openly around the island carrying weapons such as clubs and lances and staves, wearing animal skins, and guzzling milk. He's very specific about how they guzzled milk. And that makes total sense because they would have to live off their herds when they couldn't steal food from people. And let's be honest, the milk that they were drinking was probably cleaner than the water they had access to. That also. Many of these groups had packs of enormous mastiffs with them that had been raised on raw meat, so very scary dogs. Which makes sense, sheep dogs, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, the thing about the dogs here is, like, you need dogs to help protect your flock at night because you have wolves, you've got other bandits and people who might want to take off with your sheep, like... This all tracks to me. Yeah, so if you come upon a bandit group in the middle of the night, first off, why are you going anywhere in the middle of the night in Sicily? Terrible idea. You should not be going anywhere at night in Sicily 
shortly before the first or second Servile War. No, but if you happen to have to travel, at least bring some dog treats. Maybe that'll help with the packs of dogs. <laughs> bring some little snossages. You'll still wind up with no clothes, but... You'll still wind up naked, so maybe dress in layers. So... If you were unlucky enough to be enslaved in ancient Rome, one of the worst places to end up was on a lot of fundia. And one of the worst places to be a lot of fundia slave was probably Sicily. And of all the Sicilian lot of fundia you could possibly get stuck on, the absolute worst was the one owned by Demophilus of Enna. Demophilus was the guy we heard from a couple of minutes ago who refused to provide his shepherds with clothes. And let's be honest, this is the fucking least of his crimes, the shit stain that he is. He was a rich Roman who owned a lot of fundia deep in the Sicilian interior, near a town called Enna. And even in this extremely violent and abusive system, he was known as one of the worst. Diodorus tells us he regularly scourged and punished his slaves for no reason. A lot of the time I see Demophilus is described as treating his slaves this way for no good reason. It's like, well, is there a good reason to treat other people this way? I do not think so. Not any that would be in any way, shape, or form a good or acceptable reason to ever do anything like this to another human being. There isn't a good reason to scourge someone. I'm going to explain to you why. We see incredibly brutal, violent behavior like this in the Roman military as well. With decimation and other things they did. It is brutal, violent times, man. Yeah, so let's get a little bit more into scourging because that is a punishment that comes up a lot in this story and we should probably know what it entails. If for any reason you're thinking this is going to be okay, it's going to be fine, it's not. This is awful. If today is just not your day to hear about some horrible torture, just maybe skip ahead a few minutes. Listen, make yourself a drink, do an extra lap on the treadmill, maybe do some meditation or yoga and then come back to us. It's all right. So... The Roman scourge was a whip with multiple thongs. Some modern configurations of this are referred to as the cat o' nine tails. I feel like you see it a lot in like pirate stuff. Yeah, more recent pirate stories, the cat o' nine tails. Some examples had nine strips of leather, some had a different number, but the point is that there were multiple strips and knotted into those leather strips would be sharp, nasty things like nails or bits of glass or sharp little stones. A Roman scourging was absolutely no joke and I found some very gory descriptions of what it would have been like, ripping the skin off the victim's back down to muscle and bone, exposing the spine and ribs, causing massive blood loss and shock, and basically almost killing the victim in an extremely painful way. It's usually portrayed as something done to prisoners right before capital punishment, something like crucifixion or being thrown off a cliff. So these descriptions that I've seen that are really detailed and gory sometimes seem really legit. I found some written by doctors and historians. However, I take them with a little bit of a grain of salt because a lot of them are published, at least when I was doing the research for this, Jen, a lot of what I was finding was published on Christian website and they kind of read like Christian torture porn. You know what I'm talking about? Like, um, what is that movie by Mel Gibson that I couldn't watch because it was too gory? Yeah, you mean The Passion. The Passion of the Christ, yeah. I do know what you're talking about. And I think we're going to take a little aside for a minute here. It's actually kind of relevant because Jesus was scourged before he was crucified. And I feel like what I see sometimes is like this whole, not all Christians do this, obviously, just a small subset of Christian writing gets like really wrapped around the axle about Jesus died and suffered and died for our sins. And what exactly did that suffering entail? 
Sure. You see this a lot, particularly in the Middle Ages and in early Christian doctrine. You saw this a lot in the passion plays that they used to do in the Middle Ages and other times. And the idea behind this was to really depict how awful the suffering Jesus had during his final hours. I grew up Catholic. I've said this many times. I sung in the church choir. I did the Lent Mass. So I've done the Stations of the Cross. I know all of that. But the thing that I wanted to talk about was a lot of times throughout history, Jesus's death and how he died is used for a purpose of anti-Semitism. It's used as a way to justify anti-Semitic beliefs. And that is kind of a lot of the criticism and backlash you had for the Passion when that had come out years ago. And it's something we see throughout history. And you have to be super careful when you're looking at some of the stuff like this, particularly these websites you were mentioning, that they don't have an agenda. But this was a routine punishment that happened to enslaved people. Yeah, this was a punishment that shows up a lot in ancient Roman history as something that happened during capital punishment. Like before the thing they did to you that would kill you, they would scourge you first. And you also see scourging as as a thing that happens to people on latifundias, particularly slaves on latifundias. And I kind of got down this rabbit hole of like, well, was it really as bad as they say on these Christian sites? And I didn't know about the history of anti-Semitism. So I'm really glad Jen brought that up. We're not saying that people talking about this are necessarily anti-Semitic. I just wanted to be sure that we weren't dismissing it. We are a history podcast. We cannot gloss over that. But I really wanted to find examples where they talked about what a scourging entailed in pre-Christian Roman sources, and I didn't find a whole lot. But we did find two accounts from the ancient world. So the first is from Josephus, a Jewish historian writing in the first century AD, and he describes people who are being scourged as, quote, whipped till every one of their inward parts appeared naked, and a man whipped till his bones were laid bare, sometimes as a prelude to crucifixion. The Jewish people would have been a persecuted minority during this time, so he quite possibly witnessed this happening in his own community. And Eusebius, an early Christian writer from the 3rd and 4th centuries AD, describes people as, quote, lacerated with scourges even to the innermost veins and arteries, so that the hidden inward parts of the body, both their bowels and their members, were exposed to view. The commonality they're both saying is that scourging is so intense that your body is actually broken open so that you can see all of your insides, you can see your bones, you can see your arteries and veins. I mean, this is such an extreme punishment. You were not expected to walk away from this. This was supposed to kill you. This was not something that you were supposed to be able to then, you know, heal and go back to your work because unfortunately, the people who were inflicting this saw life as cheap. So they really didn't care what happened to you. Demophilus had a wife, Megalus, who was constantly trying to one-up her husband in cruelty and who treated her own female enslaved people very badly as well, and often had them scourged. Demophilus and Megalus had a daughter who was supposedly kind to the slaves in the Latifundia, and I'm not sure how much challenging of the status quo she did or how much power she even had to do that, but according to Diodorus, she did help bind their wounds when they were injured, so absolute bare fucking minimum of human decency on the daughter's part. So, the conditions on Demophilus's Latifundia were so bad that during the year of 135 BC, some 66 years after the end of the Second Punic War, his enslaved people decided to rebel against him. And this was no easy decision. The punishment reserved for slaves 
who rebelled was nothing less than crucifixion, the most humiliating and painful death that the torture-happy ancient Romans could imagine. Actually, it's worth noting, this is a sidebar to the sidebar, that in Roman criminal justice, female criminals were not scourged, although they were sometimes crucified. And possibly this is a sign that the Romans considered scourging even worse than crucifixion. So that's another clue as to how serious it would have been. And here's the thing. It wasn't just the troublemakers who would be punished this way. If some people rebelled, all enslaved people in the household would be crucified as punishment, men, women, and children. There are documented instances of this happening. The living conditions on Demophilus' estate must have been horrific for the rebels to risk such a punishment. But Demophilus' slaves had some serious challenges in planning a rebellion. They came from disparate places— Syria, Greece, Macedonia, Spain, Anatolia, North Africa, they may not have spoken a shared language. As agricultural slaves, they were constantly watched. They had to be careful, and they needed a leader they could trust. The person they turned to was a man named Eunice. The writer, Columella, living in the first century AD, about 200 years after the Servile Wars, wrote a very thorough treatise on how to run a latifundia. I want to just pause a second and say something about Columella. I remember... I would like periodically find references to him in various places. And um, he was usually kind of described as this agricultural expert who wrote a treatise on agriculture. And then I went and tracked down Columella because I was doing this episode. And it turns out that Columella did not just write a book about agriculture. What he wrote was a really thorough guide to how to run a latifundia, including how to deal with an enslaved workforce. And There's stuff in that book that is directly tied. He's writing after the Servile Wars, and there's stuff in there that is directly cautionary advice that is related to things that led up to the first Servile War in particular, like feed your slaves the appropriate amount and give them clothes that are appropriate to the weather. Like, it's actually really chilling. Like, he's not looking to overthrow this system. No, he's asking people to, like, just have the basics of human decency. Like, it's okay to let people sleep chained together in a tunnel in the ground, but just make sure that there's some kind of ventilation. Like, it's actually, I found it really chilling to read. Well, it's one of those things where it's like, Someone had to make a rule. There was no rule. As far as I know, there were not like human rights laws for people working in latifundias. Like this was just advice from Columella that you shouldn't have to tell people. You shouldn't have to tell people that like have the bare fucking human decency. Well, maybe don't have slaves because you're all terrible people. You're all the worst. Columella also says that you should never under any conditions admit soothsayers, witches, prophets, or magicians onto your property. The reason for that is Eunice. Eunice wasn't one of Demophilus' slaves. He lived on a neighboring Latifundia owned by a man named Antigenes. Eunice was originally from Syria, and he was a devotee of a goddess named Artagatis, typically depicted as half-woman, half-fish. That's right, he worshipped a mermaid goddess. This was so cool. Jenny and I frequently text when we are doing research, and... I texted her a lot when I was doing Dionysus stuff. And at the same time, she was doing this research on the first Servile Wars. And she just texted me, there's a mermaid goddess. And I was like, I'm done. I'm done. Just tell me this story now. That's pretty cool. So worshipping Artagatis was not for the faint of heart. The Syrio-Greek satirist Lucian describes how the goddess's followers worshipped. And remember, we're talking about a satirist. Take it with a giant boulder of salt here. Get that salt lick out, the one you had when we were talking about Julius Caesar. It's already down to a nub. You need a new one. (laughs) You need more salt. 
on your salt lick for this paragraph. So, quote, the youth throws off his clothes, rushes to the center with a great shout, and takes up a sword, which I believe has stood there for this purpose for many years. He grabs it and immediately castrates himself. Then he rushes through the city, holding in his hand the parts he has cut off. He takes female clothing and women's adornment from whichever house he throws those parts into. This is what they do at the castration. I don't know, Lucian. Lucian is a satirist. I will say, though, like, um, we just did this whole two-part series plus a conversation with Miss Baby about Dionysus, and we were talking about gender fluidity. Important to note here that after castrating himself, the aspiring priest takes women's adornment. So there's also a gender fluid aspect to worshiping at our goddess. So... Adar goddess was, at this time, the highest-ranking goddess of Syria, which was not, at the moment, a Roman province. In Italy, though, her religion was looked down as the other. It was a religion brought to the peninsula primarily by Syrian enslaved people, and groups of priests often traveled Roman roads, panhandling and giving fortunes for money. Like Dionysus, Adar goddess was seen in Rome as a goddess of underdogs, slaves, and wanderers, and there was also a connection to gender fluidity because they were badass gender warriors who refused to be bound to the binary, and we will go into it in more detail in a Patreon episode pretty soon. So back to Eunice. Eunice was an enslaved man who worked in the manor house of a neighbor of Demophilus, named Antigenes. But he was a lot more than that. He was also a priest of Adar Goddess, a prophet, a magician, and an entertainer. He claimed to receive prophecies from his goddess both awake and asleep. And he loathed the Roman aristocracy. In fact, he regularly threatened to subjugate and crucify them to their faces. <laughs> I love this. And where any other enslaved person might be punished harshly for saying such things, in this man's case, the powerful Latifundia owners only laughed and offered him treats from their plates. What condescending little fucks. <laughs> I know. There's so much horrible about this episode. But don't worry. Don't worry. Eunice is going to turn the tide. Oh, he is. So Eunice was an entertainer and a magician, and he cultivated an impressive array of party tricks. One of his most remarkable was breathing fire, something he did by putting a hollowed-out nutshell in his mouth with some flammable substance in it. Diodorus says it was sulfur, which I find fascinating because when we talked about the Dionysus episode, we talked about how the priestesses of Dionysus, the Mayanads, put sulfur on their torches so they could dip it in water and then it would come out in flames. Is there a coincidence? Is there? Sulfur is really hard to put out if it's on fire. I think that's the coincidence. So anyway, he put this flammable substance in this hollowed out nutshell and then breathing on it. So fire and sparks spewed out of his mouth. That's his party trick, guys. He was a fire breather. He was. I love it so much. Eunice's master, Antigenes, loved his act including the amusing patter about subjugating the audience. He used to bring Eunice around to dinner parties and have him perform for his wealthy friends. Eunice would perform sleight-of-hand tricks, breathe fire, and tell the aristocratic guests that soon he would lead an uprising, slaughter them all, and rule over the fucking ashes. The audience found this hilarious. They were just like, man, Eunice's fire breathing is great, but he's just really good with the banter about killing us. His banter is so good. So funny. His banter is ancient history fangirl level good. Oh God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he rises above this level. The bar is low. <laughs> 
So some of these guests during his act would offer him scraps from their table, condescendingly asking him to remember, remember their kindness when he became king. Those are the ones to kill first. Oh, yeah. Kill them first. But the slaves in Demophilus's estate took Eunice seriously. They came to him to ask for his blessing and his leadership. 400 enslaved people gathered in a field at night, not far from the city walls of Enna, to receive Eunice's blessing for their rebellion. And relying on his skills of fire-breathing and prophecy, Eunice whipped up the crowd. He declared the gods would make the revolt successful, but only if they acted right now. See that town over there? He turned and pointed to the city of Enna behind them. The town is yours. It has been set aside for you by the gods. It belongs to you, but only if you act right now. The rebels were inspired. They made sacred pledges to each other, swore to live and die together, made sacrifices to the gods. Then, as one, they rushed the walls and attacked the city of Enna with Eunice in the lead, breathing fire into the night. The city of Enna was the most important citadel in Sicily, but it was only lightly guarded with walls that had fallen into disrepair. Wielding only makeshift weapons like kitchen and farm implements, the rebels stormed the town, quickly overwhelming any resistance, and then inflicted a level of violence that must have felt like divine vengeance. Diodorus paints a gruesome scene. The rebels killed many of the inhabitants, any who resisted, any who didn't, men, women, and children. Babies were ripped from their mother's arms and dashed against rocks. There was widespread violent rape, and all the other enslaved people who lived in the town rose up and joined the rebellion, killing their oppressors and anyone else they could find. So I just feel a need here to talk about the graphic descriptions of ripping babies out of their mother's arms and raping women in front of their husbands that exists in Diodorus. I am split over this because I think it would be naive to think that the rebels wouldn't have done extremely violent things when they sacked this city because, well, number one, for years they had survived in a really brutal system and this is what happens when someone sacks a town is this horrible levels of ultra-violence and rape. But that level of violence and rape and everything else, if you think about it, some of the people who were taken into slavery as war captives would have experienced that. They had been steeped in it. So for several reasons, it doesn't surprise me. And I don't want to gloss over these details. The thing is, it's the ancient world. Times were brutal. And what we're talking about here when the city was taken by the rebels, it's not far off to say that they would have wanted revenge on the people who did this to them. But here's the counter. You have to consider your source. Diodorus is not writing from the side of the rebels. He was a wealthy Roman, a slave owner, and he was writing for other wealthy Roman slave owners. So it behooves him to show you this bloody violent images to scare his audience and to demonize the people he's talking about and to reinstate how important the status quo is. Yeah, very true. And also um, these things that he's describing about specifically about um, how the rape was perpetrated, like women being raped in front of their husbands, because the important thing here is the husbands having their property. Being powerless. Right. And babies being ripped from their mother's arms and dashed against rocks. Like the way he describes some of these atrocities that the rebels committed are really common, possibly demonizing tropes, specifically in the accounts of behavior of slaves and persecuted minorities during uprisings. So now that I've gotten that off my chest. Do you feel lighter now? I feel lighter. Not at all. We got to get back to the story. The situation is not ideal here in Enna. Eunice and the rebels visited extreme violence on the inhabitants of Enna and were joined by slaves living in the town. Eunice murdered his own master, Antigenes, and also a previous master of his, a man named Pytho. Then, 
Eunice started looking around for Demophilus and his wife. Turns out they were taking shelter in an orchard they owned outside the city. Eunice sent a group of men to go find them and drag them back to Enna with their hands bound. You might have expected the rebels to murder Demophilus and Megalus outright or possibly torture them first. Instead, the rebels brought their captives to the amphitheater in Enna and held what appears to be a trial. And I've seen this event described as Eunice's first attempt to impose some kind of order on the rebellion as its leader and as prophesied, its king. But it didn't exactly go as planned. Diodorus describes Demophilus as a man with, quote, a proud and haughty disposition, not to mention, quote, uncouth and brought up without learning or any liberal education. But when dragged into the amphitheater and told to explain himself, Diodorus tells us he, quote, pleaded earnestly for his life and moved many with what he said. Suddenly, the people didn't seem so set on killing him. And I... That's what Diodorus tells us. Yeah, I have to just side-eye this because it's like, really? I call bullshit Diodorus. Yeah, because what I think Diodorus is hearing is the people telling him this story would have been aristocrats who are like, well, that feels like you made a good argument. Totally fine. We totally get why you scourged all those people. Well, this is the legend, isn't it? The legend is that Demophilus went out there and he gave this epic speech that calmed everyone down. And they're like, oh, yeah, totally right. We see your point, Demophilus. I don't know. I'd, I call bullshit on this. I mean, if you don't call bullshit on this, do you have a pulse? I think you're right, Jen. I think Diodorus was talking to aristocratic witnesses or descendants of witnesses. And I also think Diodorus was reinforcing the status quo to his wealthy Roman audience. Absolutely. The point of this is that Diodorus was reinforcing the status quo to his wealthy audience. He's saying, listen, Demophilus got out there. He gave this speech. People were like, oh, yeah, you're right. This is the way the world should work, Demophilus. We applaud you. We should go back to this. And then a few troublemakers decided Demophilus didn't need his head. This is the best part. I agree that Demophilus did not need his head. I also agree that this is bullshit and it did not go down that way. Here is a nice ending to this story. Hit us with it, Jen. <laughs> Disturbed by the sudden turn of the crowd. And the turn of the crowd here is, oh, they're somehow feeling like Demophilus has made a good speech and they agree with it. Bullshit. Eunice's commanders rush forward, stabbing and beheading the man mid-speech. The wife of Demophilus, Megalus, was given to her own female slaves, who then scourged her and tossed her over a cliff. Payback's a bitch, bitch. I guess, Jenny, we found the one instance where scourging is acceptable punishment. When it's Megalus and Demophilus. Those assholes deserve to be scourged. Well, Demophilus got out pretty easy. They just stabbed him and beheaded him. I know. Well, they just decided he could do the rest of his trial without his head. Yeah. Now I feel like scourging is like the worst possible thing that could happen to you. And that's what I'm saying. Megalus got scourged and then thrown over a cliff. She was probably in a state of shock because she'd been scourged and half dead anyway because her bones were sticking out from the scourging and then they just tossed her over a cliff. And her insides. Don't forget about the insides. The insides, definitely, those were sticking out too. They were now on the outside. <laughs> insides on the outside. Over the cliff you go. That's a nice little ditty that I just made up. This is a dark, dark episode. If this was Eunice's first attempt to impose some kind of order by executing Demophilus and Megalus through some kind of legitimate trial rather than by sheer mob violence and retribution, it didn't go that way exactly. 
However, his next move worked. Eunice shut the gates of Enna and let his rebels kill almost everyone in the town who wasn't already dead, with particular violence meted out to slave owners, which wouldn't just have been the wealthy, by the way, because people at all levels of society in ancient Rome owned slaves. Like, that's another thing that it's important to just drive home here. We're not just talking about wealthy slave owners. Like, even middle-class merchants, craftspeople, like, really poor people probably would not have had an enslaved person living in their house. But everybody else had at least one or two. It was just endemic at all levels of society. But some people were strategically spared, such as all the wealthy aristocrats who fed Eunice from their tables and asked him to remember their kindness when he was king. I suspect Eunice was keeping these guys around to torture later. Oh, I really hope so. Demophilus's daughter, who was kind to the enslaved workers, bare minimum kindness, was carefully guarded and later escorted to a neighboring town to take refuge with family. How old was she? She was probably at least not marriageable age or she would have lived in a different house. Anyway, so another group Eunice spared was the armorers and metal workers. These were chained to their anvils and forced to produce weapons and armor for the rebels. Very smart, Eunice. So lots of writers characterize Eunice's uprising as a spontaneous event, but there's evidence that actually it was meticulously planned. One clue is that Eunice acted quickly to consolidate his power, arming his followers, securing his metal workers, and appointing the wisest among his people as advisors. Another is that almost at the same time as Eunice's rebellion, another uprising broke out in the coastal town of Acragas, 54 miles to the southwest. This one was led by Cleon, a slave from Cilicia, with a much more tough and martial background than Eunice. Diodorus describes him as a shepherd and an extremely tough character who'd grown up steeped in banditry and murder since childhood. Immediately after taking the town of Acragas, Cleon marched north toward Enna. The Roman authorities in the area assumed the two armies would fight it out, essentially destroying each other. But instead, they joined forces. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, Romans. Happy learn to punt. Let me just tell you, the biggest lesson of the Servile Wars is that the Romans always, always underestimate the leaders of these rebellions, and it always winds up kicking them in the ass, as it should. So Cleon swore allegiance to Eunice and was appointed his right-hand man. Then Eunice and Cleon's juggernaut rolled through Sicily, capturing town after town. Eunice's tactics were both brutal and strangely playful. Diodorus tells an entertaining story of how, while besieging a town, Eunice and his men stood out of bowshot range of the defenders on the walls and then put on a kind of improv show, depicting how they'd risen up and killed their own oppressors, viciously mocking the defenders and depicting their own impending murder. In the midst of all this horror, there is still time time for improv. I love it. Yes, and. (laughs) But things weren't easy for Eunice and his followers. Historians speculate that his followers weren't just armed men, but also women and children and other non-combatants who were vulnerable and hungry. And that makes sense. Think about all the people who've now been liberated. The only safe place for them is within Eunice's camp. The rebels didn't take every town they tried to capture. According to some accounts, they laid siege to one large city for so long that Eunice's army was reduced to eating fish. And remember, fish was an animal sacred to the goddess Atargatis, and normally off-limits. Diodorus tells us that, quote, their pressing needs and lack of provisions forced the rebel slaves to risk everything because they had no opportunity to follow a better course. One thing Eunice didn't lack was conscripts. Wealthy landowners and their enslaved populations weren't the only people living in Sicily. There were also other groups, the remains of the Greek colonies, as well as indigenous groups of people who had lived on the island since as early as 3000 BC. These, a lot of the time, 
were referred to in the ancient sources as native Sicilians. Most of these native Sicilians had been gradually forced into the interior as wealthy foreign landowners, first Carthaginian and then Roman, had bought up land along the coast. They had become minorities on their own island. Centuries of abuse, oppression, marginalization, and wealth inequality had baked a ferocious resentment into these people, and now they took the opportunity for a little payback. Thousands of native Sicilians streamed into Eunice's army, and these were even more hardcore than the former slaves. Diodorus tells us that when Eunice's former slaves took Roman prisoners, they cut off their hands. When the native Sicilians took prisoners, they hacked off the entire arm. I don't quite understand why they would do that. Well, you know what it reminded me of, Jen, was um, when I was reading the commentaries, and there are accounts, I didn't go down every single rapid hole of the commentaries, but there are accounts of Julius Caesar doing this in the Gallic wars when he was besieging a town and the town resisted and he wanted to make an example of the populace. There is at least one town I can think of where he cut off everybody's hands. Oh, fuck you, Julius Caesar. It's the fucking worst. Asshole. This is like a tactic that a lot of ancient commanders would do. The Mongols did it, you know, like the Mongols would kill every single person in a city and then every other city would capitulate to them. They do it so that other cities wouldn't resist. Well, that makes sense. Diodorus doesn't really give us a lot of detail, but that is one reason I could think of that they might be hacking people's arms or hands off. So the native Sicilians obeyed Eunice, but only when they felt like it. For instance, when Eunice gave orders that farmers, crops, and farm property be protected so that he could better feed his army, the native Sicilians went against Eunice's orders torching crops in the fields. That is not great because you really do need that food to feed your army. But it is kind of, you can see where the native... Sicilians are coming from here. I mean, they've been brutalized too. Oh, yeah. They've been brutalized. They've been forced off their land. And now they're like, oh, I'm sorry. You think you can contain us? Not going to happen. Now you're telling us that we have to be nice to these people who took our land? No. I feel like Diodorus demonizes the native Sicilians a little bit too. So there's that. Well, Diodorus, fuck right off. Anyway, the rebellion snowballed. Thousands of enslaved people rose up all over Sicily and joined Eunice's rebellion. His followers put a diadem on his head and, quote, graced him with all the emblems of royalty. His wife, a Syrian woman, was declared queen. Within a month, Eunice had attracted over 20,000 new followers from all over Sicily. Within the year, his army had grown to over 200,000, almost the entire slave population of Sicily. I have to side-eye some of these numbers. We've talked about it before. Whenever you get like a round number, like 200,000 or 20,000, usually the ancient sources don't have it quite right. No, but I think that I've seen the numbers of a population of 600,000 on Sicily, approximately 200,000 were enslaved. Yes. So what we're saying here is Eunice's rebellion has liberated every single enslaved person on Sicily. I don't know. It's like you use the word liberated, but I'm like, it's not like they were being liberated to a good situation. Like now they're all embroiled in an extremely violent war and some of them are non-combatants and many of them had absolutely no options. Violence on the left, violence on the right, can't stay in your original latifundia because you might get crucified, can't run into the woods because there are shepherds, can't get off the island. You can't get off this island. When we talk about Spartacus later, Spartacus's war happened on the Italian mainland and there were ways to get out of Italy. The problem with the war on Sicily is that it's an island. It was a fishbowl. It was a fishbowl. And if you somehow got to the coast and you could bribe someone to take you on your ship, 
There was a very real chance the person you were bribing might be a pirate who would then just sell you back into slavery, or they might be captured by pirates and then just sell you back into slavery. So there was no, you know, it wasn't as easy as just being like, okay, I guess I'm not going to be a part of this. You would just get swept up in it. There's nothing else to do. Yeah, and I think it's really important because a lot of the time when people tell these stories, there's a big focus on the leaders and their heroics or non-heroics and what they did and whether they wore a crown and what they called themselves and all this stuff and like the maneuverings of battle. But I really don't want to lose sight of the ordinary people who would have had to try to stay alive during this time. That's a story that we don't get a lot of. And it's really crucial. It's crucial if we do believe the numbers, which you have now convinced me that I do believe the numbers. If we do believe those numbers, there was no choice. You had no choice. So Eunice was originally from Syria, and when he was crowned, according to Diodorus, he took the name of Antiochus after the general Antiochus the Great, one of the most influential and powerful rulers of the Seleucid Empire, which once controlled Syria during what Eunice may have seen as its glory days. He declared that his followers should count themselves as Syrians. He also minted coins adorned with symbols of his patron goddess, Adar Goddess, so mermaid coins. Oh my god, if I could get one of those mermaid coins and make a necklace out of it, my life would just be next level. I think that they have them on eBay. I'm just trying to hold on to one good thing, a fierce mermaid goddess. You help people rebel against a terrible system. I mean, I guess you have to hold on to whatever you can in this crap sack world that we're in right now. (laughs) Anyway... His three most prominent advisors took the names of three of the most trusted companions of Alexander the Great, peers of the real Antiochus. In a matter of months, Eunice controlled almost all of Sicily and set up an independent state within a state with himself as the ruler. And I think that that's really something I want to emphasize here, too, because so many times you kind of see these rebellions of enslaved people as being depicted as this unruly mob with pitchforks and kitchen implements and stuff. But actually, Eunice's rebellion, he was really organized. He instituted his own coinage. He instituted like a at least a like a start at a government with advisors and things like that. Like he was really trying to make it like a sustainable state. He was. And we we definitely don't get to see this part of how people functioned when we talk about these rebellions. And we'll see it again with Spartacus. He did not institute his own coinage. He was not as organized as Eunice. He just wasn't. Anyway, but this new independent state did not have the blessing of the Roman government. Surprise, surprise. The Romans sent a number of commanders against them, and they were all defeated quickly. As many as eight commanders were chewed up and spit out by Eunice and his army within the first year. Meanwhile, in Rome, people were starting to get hungry. Eunice's rebellion was disrupting the grain supply. The breadbasket of Rome was no longer producing. Some historians have suggested that Gaius Gracchus, the second of the Gracchi brothers, perhaps the first of the great populist leaders that set the stage for Marius and later Caesar, would never have existed without Eunice. He began his career in 133 BC, while Eunice was still active in Sicily. And one of his key campaign promises was subsidized grain for all Roman citizens. We have talked about that grain dole and how important that was throughout all of our episodes. This was the promise of it being established. But remember, Mark Antony threatened to stop sending grain to Rome, and that was a huge problem. Caesar had the grain disrupted. Like, the grain was everything. When the grain dole got cut off, emperors would get, like, stoned in the streets. So Eunice managed to evade capture and drive off all Roman challenges to his power for several years. But in 133 BC, a Roman commander named Piso landed on the island Island with a more substantial force. Some sources say he had a quarter of the Roman army at his back. 
Despite possibly outnumbering Eunice, Piso and his army struggled at first, but Piso punished failure within his own ranks harshly. Once, a cavalry leader named Titus blundered into an ambush and was robbed of his weapons by Eunice's men. He was punished by being forced to wear a torn toga, go without a bath, and stand guard barefoot outside the tent of his commanding officer. His men were reassigned from the high-ranking cavalry, which was like the highest-ranking part of the army, I guess, to the slingshot division, the lowest-ranking unit in the army. Shame, shame. Shame, although I'm terrified of the ancient world sling bullets, as you'll know if you listen to our episode on Fulvio. Yeah, the sling bullets were scary. They were. The sources are somewhat vague about the sequence of battles that happened in Sicily around this time. But during the next two years, while Eunice and Piso warded out, something turned. Eunice and his men were no longer confident meeting the Romans in the field, and most accounts of battles toward the end of his rebellion involved the Romans besieging various cities, and there were some spectacular defeats. For instance, at the town of Morgantina, the Roman military defeated a force of 8,000 rebel defenders and crucified them all. That's more than Crassus crucified at the end of the Third Servile War, right, Jen? I'm not 100% sure on that. It might be. I think so. I think Crassus only crucified 6,000. I'm not 100%. By 132 BC, about three or four years into the rebellion, a man named Publius Rupulius, Publius Rupilius, Rupilius. Okay, that's his name. He will from now on be Publius. Publius Rupilius. (laughs) He will from now on be Publius. Publius Rupilius. Jenny will just keep saying that for me because I'm not going to be able to do it. Publius Rupilius tagged out Piso and took control of the Roman offense. He besieged a city called Terminium, held by Cleon's brother, Commodus. The siege was so brutal that the rebel defenders fell to eating their own children, then their women, and finally each other. Commodus tried to break through the besiegers' lines and was captured. Not long after that, a Syrian named Serapion opened the doors to Rupilius, Publius, Rupilius, and his men. Publius Rupilius had all the surviving defenders scourged and thrown over the cliffs. From there, Publius Rupilius marched to Enna, Eunice's first stronghold, and now the last one standing. The sources tell us that the conditions inside were dire. The defenders had been reduced by starvation and plague. Just as his brother had, the great general Cleon made a brave attempt at escape by punching through the besiegers' line. He was cut down in a brutal battle, and his naked, bleeding body displayed before the walls. Even so, despite everything, despite starvation, sickness, and the gory death of one of their great leaders, Eunice and his remaining men managed to repel every attack. Until, that is, someone betrayed him from within and opened the doors to Rupilius. Rupilius captured many of the defenders and had them executed, but about 600 slipped through his fingers, including Eunice. In a desperate flight to a secret seacliff hideout pursued by Rupilius, they remembered their initial oath to each other four years ago in the field outside the walls of Enna. Rather than be crucified or taken back into slavery, 600 men cut each other's throats. Eunice did not commit suicide. Instead, he fled to a remote mountain cave, his entourage now reduced to four followers, his cook, his hairdresser, his jester, and the man who rubbed him in the bath, (laughs) as Diodorus describes him. 
I don't understand what that means. <laughs> I think it's his masseuse. But Diodorus literally calls him the man who rubbed him in the bath. And maybe it's just the translation I have. The only levity in this entire episode is that terrible translation. I mean, we tried to find other bits of levity, but it just seems really awkward laughing at this episode. Also, we're not drunk enough. We will not be drinking through this episode or the next one, but tune in for Spartacus. Yeah. <laughs> We've got to find some more opportunities to drink in this arc or it's just going to be real grim dark the whole time. Oh, I think there'll be seven Thracians and we've got a drink for the gladiators. <laughs> yeah. Eventually, Rupilius's men found Eunice, dragged him out of his hiding place and threw him into a prison in Morgantina to await justice. But Eunice died before any Roman justice could be meted out. According to Diodorus, he was devoured by lice in his jail cell. So I just want to stop a minute and talk about that particular death. Oh, God, it's going to make me feel gross. No, no, no. It's not about the details of what happens when you die of lice. Um, okay. <laughs> I promise. It's about what, what it means, the symbolism of it. And here's where we might be seeing some of Diodorus's slant showing again. There are a couple of points in our podcast, like in other episodes we've done, where we've talked about people's deaths that are similar to this. Sulla got eaten by worms. If you remember, King Herod got, like, his dong eaten by worms or something. Do you remember that? Yep. Usually, like, this kind of, like, being eaten by worms or lice or something, it's like this death that may or may not have really happened, but I've also seen it kind of this theory by more modern scholars that this is a death given to people who are morally corrupt in some way or morally flawed in some way, like, really morally flawed. And that might be why Eunice is described as being eaten by lice because that's how Diodorus saw him. Or maybe there was just really no sanitation at all in this jail cell and he already had a, an infection from something and he died of it and then had some lice on him and people said, oh, he must have gotten eaten by all these lice. Which is also horrible. Sorry. Horrible. Yeah. Let's move on. Let's move on because this has been so hard. <laughs> Drink your tea, Jen. I did. My teeth hurt. Calm down, Jen. Just calm down about Eunice dying. Of lice in the jail cell. Here's some tea with some CBD oil in the tea. Thanks for lepidusing me. Put some <laughs> CBD oil in the tea. Meanwhile, Rupilius, just say his name. Pubilius, Rupilius. Led his forces systematically throughout Sicily, putting down the remainder of the revolt. Any rebels he captured, along with their families, were either put to death or re-enslaved. Ancient writers often characterize Eunice as ultimately a coward, mainly because he fled the city of Anna and took refuge in these mountain caves, rather than dying with his men. But Eunice was a man who inspired a revolt through magic and prophecy, led armies into battle breathing fire, and held off the might of the Roman Republic for four years. Whatever else you might say about him, his personal courage was unimaginable, and his actions had a profound effect on the Roman Republic. In the wake of Eunice's rebellion, a wave of slave uprising swept the Republic. In the silver mines of Athens, the sacred island of Delos, along the Appian Way, all the way to Asia, and even in the city of Rome itself, thousands of enslaved people rose up against those who enslaved them. Some of these uprisings lasted years, but none of them ultimately succeeded. All the rebelling slaves were defeated, put to death, or sold back into slavery. You could say if it wasn't for Eunice, there would have been no Gracchi, no populist movement that led to Marius, and if there'd been no Marius, there wouldn't have been a Caesar, wouldn't have been an Augustus, maybe there wouldn't have been an empire. But all that was far in the future. In the years immediately following Eunice's death, 
the great Sicilian latifundia, recovered. Within a few years, they were up and running again, just as strong, profitable, and cruel as before. It would seem that Eunice had accomplished nothing. The Roman landowners were back on top, and the system of slavery, oppression, and death was still in place. But just 28 years later, another major uprising, the Second Servile War, would shake that system to its foundations once again. And we will tell you all about it in the next episode. So that's it for this week. Join us in two weeks to learn about the Second Servile War. And in the meantime, come and find us on social at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter and at Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. And check out our Patreon. We've got exclusive extra episodes for Patreon subscribers that deal with stories we didn't get to tell in our longer episodes. The side quests, if you will. You can join for just $2 a month. And we have some Patreon members to thank, by the way. Khaled Moharam, Crystal Coelho, and Elizabeth Henahan. And I'm so sorry if I mispronounced anyone's name. I probably did. Hopefully I got it right. (laughs) Thank you so much for your patronage. We really appreciate it. It is absolutely our joy to bring you extra episodes. And if you're not into Patreon, but you'd still like to help, check out our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com, where you can kick us a few bucks through our Ko-Fi account, find a link to our amazing merch, and check out the show notes of our episodes. And if you like our show, please leave us a nice review because it really does make all the difference to us. It it makes us so happy and helps move us up in those algorithms. It gives us a morale boost. It does. Thank you for listening and we will see you in two weeks. Thank you so much for listening. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.